I don't believe she woke up that morning and said, I want to botch a procedure. Something happened in the procedure room. Maybe he wasn't on his side like he should have been. Maybe he was on his back when he aspirated. And instead of treating it as an urgent matter, she made it sound like he just didn't prepare. To me, it just looks like she was doing self-preservation versus helping the patient. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. When Laura Johnson's father, Bill, a healthy and active senior, went for a simple medical procedure, Laura's gut instincts told her to miss work and go with him to keep him safe. But Bill told her he had a friend accompanying him and assured Laura he would be fine because how badly could they mess this up? Tragically, Laura's instincts were right. Her father was not safe in that hospital under their care. And the doctor responsible for Bill's care is the daughter of a doctor who is imprisoned for medical fraud. The medical apple does not fall far from the criminal tree. Laura shares what happened to her father, how he was blamed when the procedure went wrong, and how staggering levels of medical incompetence led to his early death. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Laura Johnson and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Laura's experience with the healthcare system. Awesome, thanks Laura. So. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in the Memphis, Tennessee area in the United States, and that's called the Mid-South. I'm an only child, so that's kind of one thing that people always say, oh my gosh, you're so lucky. But, but sometimes it's kind of lonely, especially when both of your parents are gone, so you don't really have that sense of family anymore. But um, 
Uh, we grew up in a middle-class family. My mom was a professional portrait artist and a florist. And then my dad did sales. He was in the freight line industry. So we grew up in just the middle-class family, did a lot of camping and, and fishing, but I'm one of those who, you know, I, I throw my fish back because I don't like to like to have anything that I have to kill. We don't do that at my house. So we're here to talk about your dad's experience, but before we go there, just generally, what was your experience and your family's experience with the healthcare system up until that point? Um, in Alabama, in the region that we're in, central Alabama, even though we are next to a large city, we still don't have a very good healthcare system here. I mean, they can handle the smaller things, but when it comes to anything outside the norm, it's just not, you know, what it was in Tennessee. I lived in Tennessee for 35 years, and then coming here, it was kind of a shock. And everyone that I met in the area said, you know, if you need anything major, you need to go to Birmingham. And, and they were right. It took about a year and a half to get my lupus diagnosis. You know, I, I tried different specialists here and my dad witnessed that. So we, we knew that when he moved here after he retired that we would, if he needed anything, it would have to be probably in the Birmingham area. So my rheumatologist was able to give him a cardiologist name and that's who he saw because he did have AFib and some high blood pressure, but he controlled that with medication and diet and exercise. He was more, probably more fit and had a better social life than me. Wow, wow. Um, so for people who aren't familiar with the term AFib, what is that? Um, his heart would get out of rhythm from time to time and he ended up having an ablation for that. And they really don't know the, the cause. They don't know if it was stress back when he was working for one of the, the freight lines. He was going through a stressful time. And that's kind of when it all kind of snowballed. Other than it, that, he took care of himself. Okay. And an ablation, what is that? Um, for the ablation, they, they did something where they had to go. I'm really not too sure with that. I believe they went in and they kind of shocked the heart to go back into rhythm. I believe that's the correct term that they would use with that. Yeah, that sounds familiar for AFib because it's sort of out of out of its proper sort of rhythm. Right. Uh, so in spite of your dad's sort of minor heart problems, he had a, an active life, a social life, but then something changed. What happened? Uh, he had been living here about three and a half years and he started having some mild reflux. And he didn't think much about it. He kind of changed his diet a little bit and uh, added some over-the-counter regimens to that, Tums or that kind of thing. And that didn't seem to help. So he went to his uh, general practitioner and she prescribed a medication for him. That didn't seem to help either. So she decided she wanted to schedule him for what they call an open access EGD which is an upper endoscopy where they go in with the, the tube with the camera and uh, the light where they can kind of see what's going on in your esophagus and stomach area. And my internist that I had here had told me at one point, you know, you don't want to go to a GI doctor in this area. If it's something serious, they can't handle it. My guy is in Birmingham and my dad made an appointment with him as well. 
but he couldn't see my dad till the end of January. And this procedure was set up for the first part of January. So my dad was in a holding pattern. He said, let me just see how I'm feeling and I'll decide what I'm going to do and who to see. Was so this that, in January just past? Uh, January of 2019. 2019, so just over two mm -hmm. years ago. Yes. He ended up going to the open access EGD, which I really didn't want him to do because you're meeting, the GI doctor has never seen you before. So they're just going in based on your symptoms. And he had started having, where he felt nauseated and full, he was eating oatmeal and water. Now he was still volunteering at the library. He had just walked in the Christmas parades, but he wasn't sleeping because his esophagus was so eroded. And you know, I just, I, I didn't want him to go that route. So that's what he ended up doing though. And it was not a very good outcome. So he went for this open gastro examination. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and what were the results? What happened there? Well, he didn't want me to go with him because he didn't want, he didn't want me taken off work. He had a friend who was gonna take him. He said, we'll call you. There's no reason, you know, how bad can you mess up an EGD? They're going to go in, look at it. And he said, and I'll be fine. And I said, I can still meet you there. You know, no, no. And I should have listened to my little voice, but I went on to work and his friend called about 930 that morning. And he told me that uh, my dad had aspirated during the procedure where when they, I guess, withdrew the, the tube, he vomited and they were afraid that some of that had gone into his lungs. So I rushed down to the, the GI lab with my husband and uh, met with the doctor. And she kept asking me repeatedly, have my dad forgotten to fast? And I told her no, that he you know, had something around four that afternoon, the day before, that he uh, had oatmeal and that he really hadn't been eating. And she kept saying, are you sure, are you sure? Because you know, he lives alone. Well, I know she, you know, my dad wasn't a frail old man. And he, he had all of his, you know, he was not mentally impaired in any way. So um, she asked him the same questions and he was sitting on the bed kind of coughing and gasping for air. You know, he wasn't, didn't look real, real good. And he pretty much told her the same story that I had. He had fasted. So she uh, decided to put him next door in the hospital overnight for observation and try to repeat the procedure the next day. But she kept telling me and reassuring us he would be fine. You know, he was on his side when he aspirated. He should be fine. Might get worse for a day or two, but that shouldn't be a problem. So we, we weren't really in panic mode at that point, but I did leave to go get the living will that the hospitalist had asked for and that type of thing while they were admitting them for observation. Okay, so it sounds like they're being diligent. They want to uh, keep them for observation. When I came back in a few hours later, he, you know, they had him on the high flow oxygen, but he was still gasping for air and they had an NG tube. And that's where they run a tube up through your nose, down the back of your throat into your stomach. And they try to drain the contents because she wanted to do an EGD the following day. But the contents that they were pulling from his stomach, it was like a brown thick liquid. And I asked the GI doctor what that was and 
She looked at me and said, I don't know what that is. And I said, well, you are going to test that, correct? And she said, yes. Well, they never did test it, and they started telling me that it was old blood. Well, we were at this particular hospital for two weeks, and I don't know how you can pull brown liquid for two weeks that's old blood. At some point, I would have thought it would have been fresh blood. Over that period of two weeks, he ended up with two more EGDs, uh, both times with, with biopsies. Uh, the original GI doctor did the second EGD and told me there was a mass and that she felt like it was uh, adenocarcinoma, an aggressive form of cancer, but would wait for the biopsy results. And when we got those in, it was not cancer. It said no evidence of malignancy. And he, at this time, was intubated because his breathing was horrible. He had aspiration pneumonia. Um, his kidneys were starting to fail because he was septic. They had put him on just your basic antibiotic for that, but he wasn't getting better. And they um, didn't really want to do a CT scan because of his kidneys. We would have to use a contrast. But I finally said, you know, we kind of need to know what we're looking at. And his kidney numbers had gone back up. So they did agree to a scan and it was just one little growth. And they had made it sound like, you know, his body was not, they kept telling me his body was not recovering. His lungs couldn't recover because he was eaten up with cancer. Well, it's just one growth. So the partner of this GI doctor came in and did a third EGD and she felt like it was lymphoma, but again, no evidence of malignancy when they got the biopsy report. So I just felt like I was in this constant turmoil of not knowing what's going on. I wasn't given the full picture I didn't feel. Um, you know, it's kind of like you're telling me he has cancer, he's got this old blood, but none of the results are coming back to really you know, confirm what they're trying to tell me. And I asked if we could have him move because they said he really needed an endoscopic ultrasound, which is pretty much the same procedure as the EGD, but it's a longer needle and they can kind of guide it with an ultrasound to get a better biopsy. But none of the hospitals in our town had that technology. And they said they couldn't move him, but if I could find a doctor in Birmingham that could, that he could go there because they did have that capability. So my GI doctor was nice enough to have him moved up to the hospital where he had privileges. And we ended up there. Okay, and from what you've said, it sounds like Birmingham generally is gonna give you better quality care. Yes. Okay. We have um, a college there called UAB, which is the University of Alabama. And it's a medical college. And there are a lot of good hospitals up there. Uh, the one my dad was transferred to was Brookwood. And the, the care was, was really good there. I have no complaints. But when he got moved there, lo and behold, we, we get there and the doctors looked at me and said, well, what's the story? They didn't send any records. So they have none of his records. They don't have any of his procedures, nothing. And I said, I could call and see about getting them moved up to you know, their hospital. And they said, no, we are going to reinvent the wheel. We're not dealing with it. So 
the first thing that they did, the GI doctor came in and looked at my dad and laughed because the fluid that was being pulled from his stomach, as you know, this man said any GI doctor would know, it's fermented food. He has an obstruction. It's not blood. So that's the first warning bell that went off in my head. And the uh, intensivist there did a bronchoscopy, which is where they go in through the mouth, but they suction out the lungs and they're able to culture the lungs to find out what you know exactly is going in. They can remove some things, you know, if you have foreign objects and then see what kind of a bacteria you have in your lungs or is it a fungus and then test it to see what medication would work best because the pulmonary doctor had taken my dad off of antibiotics. So they went and they found the right antibiotic combination to use on him to try. They got him hooked up to dialysis. They got the ventilator off of him and put him on a trach because he was on that for far too long. You know, it was just a nightmare. But they finally went in and they did a fourth EGD because they did find a little bit of fresh blood. And that was just an ulcer from the ventilator tube that had been in his throat. So that was fine. But they said he does, you know, have that one mass. And it was what they called a gist, which is just a tumor. It could be cancerous, but they said most likely the way it looked and where it was, it was probably benign. But either way, that was treatable. But because they were weaning him off the sedation medication, because they wanted to see if he would wake up, there was no gag reflex when they did the EGD. So um, he was pretty much, you know, brain damaged from lack of oxygen from the initial injury. From so, weeks before? Mm -hmm. From when they, um, from the aspiration. So really the whole thing, when they got him on dialysis, everything boiled down to him being septic from aspirating and it going into his lungs. So um, we ended up taking him off, you know, the, the um, ventilator and he passed almost 10 years to the day of my mother. And I buried him next to her on Valentine's day. So. Wow. Uh, so when did you piece all of this together? Well, I guess the most emotion that I have dealt with is anger, which is probably what's kept me going. And just had I not moved him, I would have never known the horrible care that he had received. You know, at the other hospital, the local one that I didn't mention earlier, I had a hospitalist ask me what I was doing. And I said, I'm trying to find out what's wrong with my father. He said, well, you're creating a legal issue for us because he has a living will and he has cancer and you're just keeping him going. And I said, we don't have a diagnosis of cancer. And he said, but I know adenocarcinoma. I know cancer. I've seen the pictures. Your father has cancer. So it was, and I even had a nurse that, because I would bring them chocolate because my aunt was a RN. So she said, the nurses are your best friends. Feed them chocolate. So I brought chocolate every couple of days. And I had one tell me that she didn't trust these doctors. 
that I needed to get him to a better place. So I decided to pull the records from both hospitals and see what exactly was in the records. And the EGD from the first, the first EGD, the gastroenterologist had actually written in the unplanned events for preparation. So it's like my dad didn't prepare properly. He ate is what she's essentially saying. Blame the patient. Um, yes. And, you know, it just goes on and on. And it talks about even the pulmonary doctor talks about he continues to bleed. He has bloody discharge. They, they never tested it. But when I was reading through nurses comments, you know, because he was still having um, initially he was still having some bowel movements, you know, there was no blood. You know, and even the third um, EGD says it was a non-bleeding mass. So, okay, so why are we bleeding? If it's non-bleeding, how can it be blood? You know, so I'm piecing this together. I'm looking at it and I took them off antibiotics. Uh, there's no malignancy is identified in anything. And then you compare it to Brookwood where there's it's fermented food. You know, he just has a mass and it's, the aspiration that's killed him, it, it's not this obstruction. So um, I filed a complaint with the medical board here and was told by the investigator because he pretty much saw what I did, but he said, you know, doctors protect doctors. And I don't know if these nurses will talk to me because I had names, you know, because they worry about, you know, repercussions. And uh, he went to work, but, uh, and I even told him that I looked up the first GI doctor because I, I wanted to learn more about her. How long had she been doing this? You know, is she just a bad doctor? Did she not know? But uh, she'd been doing this for about 10 years and prided herself on being a second generation GI doctor. And so I went, well, who's, who's the other doctor in her family? Well, it was her father in another state who lost his license. He had forged um, some workers' comp docs. Uh, he had a couple of other minor things on there, but he was sentenced to 63 months in prison for a $17.3 million Medicare scam. Whoa. So I'm thinking I wouldn't want that to be tied with my name if I'm a doctor. If that were my dad, no, we, we wouldn't be going down that route. So I just, you know, wonder how did she grow up? It, I don't believe she woke up that morning and said, I want to botch a procedure. But I do believe something happened in the procedure room. Maybe he wasn't on his side like he should have been. Maybe he was on his back when he aspirated. And that's why he was filled with what he did. And instead of treating it as an urgent matter, she made it sound like he just didn't prepare. Maybe it, to me, it just looks like she was doing self-preservation versus helping the patient. That's all I can come up with. But of course, the medical board protected her and she did not even receive a letter of concern in her file, nothing. Wow, and so that's where you are right now? There's really nothing more I can do. I uh, wrote, the, wrote the medical board and then I copied I've sent a totally different one to the investigative office because I feel like they'll put it actually in the file. 
but that I was disappointed with their outcome and they had failed my dad. They had failed the rest of the patients of Alabama and that I wish them all better doctors than they were to my father and that they will see her name again. So you first had to deal with this pretty sudden loss of your father who was really healthy until the last few weeks of his life. And then you had right. to deal with a medical and healthcare system, which you found out really failed you and your dad. So yes. how are you processing that? You know, you told us about how sort of practically, legally, you tried to work with the system and the system doesn't want to work with you. So how are you personally dealing with that? I've dealt with a lot of guilt because I, I feel like if I had just picked up the phone and called my GI office where he had an appointment that his nurse would have either worked him in or given him over to a partner who could have seen him, you know, so he wouldn't have had to go down this road. But I never thought it would have come to this. I never, you know, you just don't ever think that that's the outcome you're going to have. So that's kind of been a big tug of war where I feel guilt, but you know, at the end of the day, I can't, can't change it. So you feel this helpless feeling where you just don't really know how to feel a lot of times. Sometimes it's anger, sometimes you're upset, sometimes it's guilt. So I, I don't really know where you go from here. Some days are better than others. Yeah, there's a whole range of emotions you can experience. And I, I'm hearing that the guilt is a big one for you. I'm feeling that if only I had have done dot, right. dot, dot, which is a very mm -hmm. common experience for folks. And, and it, it sounds like you're dealing with sort of the trauma of the loss and the trauma of the medical system. And that, like you say, you're sort of stuck and lost and don't know where to go next. Right. And, you know, I was, I was warned by other patient advocates who've had similar experiences that you, know, you probably won't get any, any closure. It, it doesn't seem to happen a whole lot. But it's not uncommon to, to have this outcome. Yes, unfortunately, that's so true, which sort of forces us to have to try to find other ways to resolve the feelings and the experience and try to make meaning out of it, which makes it harder because you're trying to make meaning out of working through the system and probably hope to change the system so it doesn't happen to anybody else's family. Right. But then they've taken that opportunity of making that sort of meaning away. Right, exactly. But on the other hand, we're here right now making this podcast, which is going to reach many, many people. Yes. That's a good thing. It is a good and thing. I, I just want people to know if they, if they have just in any inkling where something doesn't feel right, you know, you, you can fire a doctor, you can go someplace else. You don't, you're not tied into that one particular doctor, you know, and if your gut tells you to do something else, do it. Listen to it. I wish I had. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really important message that people feel they're empowered and that they have the choice to do something else, especially if their gut's not telling them that that's the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, Laura, thank you so much for sharing your story and, uh, and for the efforts you made to try to change the system. And 
for coming on the podcast today because this this will help other people you know make future decisions about their own health care and the health care of their loved ones so we never know how this will impact others but it, it'll be a positive way okay well thank you so much thank you for the opportunity to, to hear the story well, thanks to Laura for sharing her story and thanks to you for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean and all the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to Patreon dot com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast and if you need the support of an experienced counselor for dealing with medical error and or living with complex chronic illness you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com